Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, hello, hello. We are back, back, back. And this week I am talking to Dr. Colleen Darnell. We are traveling to ancient Egypt via Connecticut. Um, Such a joy to talk to Colleen. I have Instagram stalked uh, this glorious, glorious woman uh, for a while. And when the podcast was coming around for a series two, I thought, well... Now is the chance. Now I have an excuse to talk to this absolute delight of a human. So uh, I hope you enjoy it. This is a very different flavor to the other episodes. She's a very clever woman. Not to say that other people I haven't spoken to aren't very clever, but they're not bloody doctors, are they? You know, takes a lot of work to get that before your bloody name. So, you know, praise be. Praise be, all of that stuff. Uh, yes, anyway, hope you love the episode. What do I need to tell you? Oh, yes, you can listen to this ad-free on my Patreon. That's patreon.com forward slash Mr. Joe Black. That's M-I-S-T-E-R, not just M-R. Uh, follow me on the social media, mostly all Mr. Joe Black, all one word, the M-I-S-T-E-R, not just the M-R. Um, come see him at shows uh, when this is coming out. I think I'm not long after this comes out uh, will I be at Brighton Spiegel Tent uh, May 31st, that's 2023. If you are listening in the future, uh, that might not be now. It's funny how time works, isn't it? Uh, Klein's Cabaret at Brighton Comedia a couple of times a year. Next one, July 6th. Again, you might be in the future. Maybe the show's still going, or maybe the planet no longer exists. Global warming! Anyway, well, maybe in the future, a good doctor, such as Colleen, will dig up a thing. They'll find an old, like clown white pan stick and they'll trace all d- they'll all do all the 3d modeling like she talks about in this interview you're here you're here and then they'll discover that this was the pan stick that belonged to a strange court jester by the name of joe black this is how history works people anyway done enough rambling enjoy the chat with me and dr colleen darnell 
hello. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> what a pleasure to have you here. Um, and I, I'll, I'll start this by saying, if you see a panic in my eyes, uh, it's, it's not just intimidation. What it is, is there's a cat sleeping on the opposite side of the room to me. And normally they would be removed because they're uh, agents of chaos. And uh, so if you, if you just sort of see my eyes widen, it's because the, the cat's just doing a stretch, which is like you get a few seconds notice before he's like, right now I'm going to ruin everything you've ever loved. But he seemed to be pretty sound over there. So I didn't want to start anything. So, yes, if you hear me call for help, it's not because this is derailing uh, <laughs> or anything. But it is a sphinx cat, which uh, I guess is quite appropriate for this because people say to me, that's an ancient Egyptian cat. And I say, no, Canada in the 70s. <laughs> Yes, exactly. So few people realize that, but there is an Egyptian connection with at least one Sphinx cat that I was honored to be photographed with in Cairo. So that was fun. It was the first one I'd ever met. So I, I'd, I'd seen that picture, but is, is that the connection is just that the cat is in Cairo? Correct. <laughs> oh, I, I thought you were going to say this cat actually is is this many years old. We don't know how he's still alive. Thousands and thousands of years old. This cat is just for some he just won't die. Uh, that's what I thought you were. That's what I thought you were suggesting there. Which is, I mean, this is an odd turn to start with. Um, <laughs> but in in the intro, I would have explained to the listeners if they are not familiar. Um, but you are you are an Egyptologist. Yes, yes. I am an Egyptologist. I've published quite a number of books, most recently co-authored with my husband, a new biography of Akhenaten and Nefertiti entitled Egypt's Golden Couple, When Akhenaten and Nefertiti Were Gods on Earth. And this is out now. It is. It is. It, it was published November 1st, and we have had so much fun touring around and lecturing. Beautiful. And then so so this is the this is where I wanted to start this. We've we've come straight and we've we've you've got a new book out. How does this begin? The the Egyptology. Were you were you small and went, aha, that's the one? Or was this something later? Like how how does that begin? So I really was completely obsessed with ancient Egypt since I was a child. Reading books, teaching myself hieroglyphs, just learning as much as I could. I was surprised with a high school graduation present, which was a trip to Egypt. That was in 1997, uh, my senior year of high school. And it was just a dream come true. And I realized after visiting that I really wanted to pursue Egyptology in college, which is why I went to Yale. And went on to get my PhD and teach in Egyptology. And now I teach art history as well as Egyptology classes on Zoom. And those aren't, uh, the Egyptology classes on Zoom aren't associated with any particular institution. It's just something that I do with people, amazing people all around the world. And there have been hieroglyph classes that are continuing. I mean, there are People who started a couple of years ago with me learning hieroglyphs that are now reading texts, actual hieroglyphic texts. And it's it's so much fun. That's right. That's so you you said that's sort of you were young when you started doing the the high, oh, I can't even, hieroglyphic. Uh, <laughs> how how old? How old? 
Oh boy. Um, really about nine or 10, I, I think is when I started trying to memorize some of the hieroglyphic signs and wow. it wasn't was until trying, I got to college. I was just trying to not go to school at that age. I was, you know, I, I was, oh, I feel very unwell today, mum. I was probably playing Pokemon. Um, <laughs> very, you're a much more driven nine, eight or nine year old than I was. Because I always love school. <laughs> just the, 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 the learning or the, just the experience of going somewhere and seeing people. In terms of going to school? Yeah. So what, what, what was it about? Because obviously now you're, you're, you're an, you are an academic. And actually the first academic we have uh, interviewed for this, uh, which is like, it's really because I'm trying to get different, different kinds of people because I think everybody's got such a unique viewpoint and story to tell and not to say the people I haven't spoken to are not academically talented in some ways but that is your your realm is academia um and was that always so you loved going to school it's because you just loved the learning and the the, the knowledge and the, the things that can happen Absolutely. So I, I always knew I wanted to be in academia to be a professor and to teach and I love being immersed in this idea of learning as much as you can about the past, studying language, studying the hieroglyphic inscriptions and hieratic papyri. And that's especially fun. I have a class coming up about hieratic because that's the handwriting. That's a person sitting down thousands of years ago, putting pen to papyrus and like a rush pen dipped in in basically a watercolor ink uh, would have been the charcoal from most of the papyri and writing a letter, writing a story, writing a note to themselves, a shopping list. And that kind of ability through study to recover these past, these lives of people in the past, I, I think is endlessly exciting. It's like the way that if you go into a, well, I mean, this, the, the Egyptian one is, uh, I guess, harder to piece together because it's so long ago that you're not going to find, I guess, a consistent of the same person necessarily. But like going into a, an antique shop and finding the old photographs with notes on them. It's, uh, you know, along the, the vein of that, I guess that would be easy if someone was 50s, you could maybe try and trace it with an address or something. But uh, this one, obviously, I guess you could delve and delve and delve and there's so much to learn because I'm trying, hang on, sorry, let me get my thoughts straight here. Um, it's not quite as easy as, ah, oh, this is an address in Connecticut. Let's trace where that house is. It's going, you know, ancient things to try and find someone's story. And then have you found from doing that uh, kind of a, a consistent through line of one particular person's thing? So that can happen archaeologically. And the best example of being able to really trace an individual person's life is from a community known now as Daryl Medina. And it is a village on the West Bank of what is now Luxor, ancient Wasat, and often called Thebes, which is the Greek name. So it's kind of funny that <laughs> when we talk about the ancient name, we often use the Greek name rather than the ancient Egyptian, which is Wasat. We don't know the vowels exactly. And in this community, there were families of workmen, and they were the artisans and sculptors and painters that 
excavated and decorated the tombs in the Valley of the Kings between about 1500 and 1100 BCE. And over the course of generations, we can see the interrelationships between the families. We get their personalities. There's even this really shocking papyrus where one of the foremen is accused of all sorts of crimes. And we even have some of their tombs preserved and their libraries. So from that village in particular, we can really flesh out some of these ancient lives. And part of the reason we can do that is because being royal workmen, so many of the people in the village, definitely the men, some of the women, it seems as well, were literate. So we not only have their furniture and their houses and their coffins, but their notes and their letters and the papyri that they read and collected. That, it, it blows my mind. So 1500 BC. So we're right. Let me try and do some. So three, three, three and a half thousand years. Yes, exactly. That's a long time. <laughs> is there, with with archaeology, is there kind of a the you know phys, physically digging and you know going into land and walls and things like that? When you find something, there's that. I guess I assume there's like a thrill of like ah, there's something, and then the kind of you know making sure it comes out correctly is that would that be fair to say i've never been on one of these digs so you know <laughs> I, i'm unsure how it works no that, that's actually a really great description so to give you an example from something that i did that this was about 10 years ago when i was directing an archaeological project in egypt in conjunction with the Ministry of Antiquities. And that's one of the really awesome things about working in Egypt is working alongside Egyptian colleagues and people who are on the expedition that are experts in excavation and survey and all of these different techniques. And during the course of the 2010-2011 season, we were excavating a late Roman settlement so only 1,500 years old, that had previously only been mentioned in a German article in passing. And excavating, clearing out these buildings and finding amphorae, these wine storage jars. And in one of the buildings, three amphorae had been put in a tiny cellar inside one of these structures, and they'd been left there for 1,500 years. And so you start to see the body of an amphora. And it is, it's completely exciting, even though it's not earth shattering, it's, it's not going to change our perception of ancient history because there were broken amphora shirts all over the surface. So we had an idea of the date already about to either side of 500 CE. But once you see that emerging, then you you get out the much smaller brushes and you start taking photographs at every stage so you can see where the amphorae were originally located. And there's been a huge development in the last 10 years with 3D modeling, where you can take 2D photos and then build up a rotatable 3D model. And they even have iPhone 
apps now that that can do that. The technology is that well developed. And that's been a huge help in archaeology because as you are excavating, you are removing and in effect destroying that original context in order to record it and gain the information. So as many 3D models as you can do and drawings and photographs and then publishing that material, you are essentially restoring the context that you just removed and interpreting the material. It's a strange dance, isn't it? That the, the kind of technology now makes it easier. Sort of the future unfolds the past more, but in order to unfold the past, it has to sort of, I guess, essentially be destroyed. Um, and what you said, said there was interesting with the, uh, that, you know, the discovery isn't necessarily like earth shatteringly amazing, but it's still, it's all of these little pieces become part of a, a bigger picture. I can't remember where it is in the UK, but there's somewhere that people always joke that there's just constantly dinosaur remains. Uh, but it's to the point where it's like, oh, God, another one, another bone. Oh, where is it? It's maybe Cornwall. But it's uh, sort of like a bit kind of, oh, here's another one. Uh, <laughs> that sort of thing. What the, um, just because we, I sort of didn't mention it, but I wanted to touch on it. You said you teach arch history. Is that Egyptian art or is that a different thing so the art history classes i teach are with a community college in connecticut a two-year college and that's actually an art history survey so we begin with paleolithic paleolithic cave paintings and go all the way through to gothic cathedrals so i definitely add an extra week in for egypt and do a little bit of a hieroglyph tutorial. But that's been one of the exciting developments I feel like in my career is going from teaching specifically Egyptology and Egyptian art history classes to doing some more general classes on art history. And it gives me new perspectives. And in the course of teaching the class, I've learned so much more about art history in the ancient world, the medieval world. And it makes going into an art into a museum that much more fun. So I, I love pulling back a little bit from just Egypt specifically in in my teaching, and that that's been a lot of fun. Do you, Do you find that students uh, their questions can sometimes inspire you to find more? Because there'll be something maybe that maybe is not of interest to you that someone has discovered of their own, and they ask you as someone that is teaching to go. Oh, what about? this and maybe like if it's not something you're familiar with that you find and then you can find a new kind of enjoyment and, and knowledge of that one particular thing because I remember not not quite the same thing but I remember in history in school I got a little bit because of course I was a goth um I remember asking my history <laughs> teacher about Rasputin and with secondary schools in the UK you know they're teaching us Henry VIII um and that's sort of it uh, <laughs> it's the Tudors the whole time um, bit of Romans, bit of Egypt in when we're younger, but uh, I remember asking him about Rasputin, and he sort of went, "Oh, yeah, I'll, I'll get back to you on that." Um, but uh, yeah, do you find that with students, they'll sometimes pose questions to you that inspire you to find new things? Absolutely, and that—that's my favorite part about teaching is that I'm constantly learning, precisely because there will be a question, and I've never thought about the topic. From that particular angle. And so that happens all the time with community college classes because the student population is amazingly diverse and people's experiences just are enrich the, the classroom environment so much. And in the Zoom classes, 
it's the same thing because I have students of all ages, literally eight to 80 and people all around the world. I, I think I've covered every continent except Antarctica at this point <laughs> in, in my classes. Zoom. <laughs> Zoom. Uh, <laughs> love it. <laughs> and that I think every week I get asked a question that encourages me to learn something new and dive deeper into an aspect of a topic that I had not considered. And that's my favorite part about, about teaching. And to be able to have a virtual classroom in addition to a physical classroom is really exciting. Was the, the, the sort of digitizing of the, the, the learning, was that kind of a post-COVID thing or was this something you did before? So Zoom classes that, that I have been offering was definitely post-COVID, simply because, honestly, I had not heard of Zoom or ever used it. I don't think anyone that. had. <laughs> <laughs> because it, I, I, that, uh, did, there's lots of things became, uh, you know, a, a, a digital existence. Um, and for the sort of thing you're doing, it, sometimes that is, is perfectly appropriate. And actually, like you said, you, opens you up to all of these different continents uh and and ultimately um could could make things more fresh is not the right word it expands it like you know people from different continents are going to ask different questions they're going to have different ideas everyone's from different backgrounds which helps you and everyone else that's there so sometimes i think this you know this pandemic is as much of a nuisance as it was uh it did kind of open up the world a little bit to communications in in different methods and uh, ways of yeah communication and learning and, and and sort of giving ideas and shows lectures you know all, all of that um so yeah sometimes i'm very grateful for it sometimes i think i didn't really want to sit at home for two years but we had to do what we had to do um uh, what i was going to say about the uh your art history and obviously the the expanse there, your fashion sense. Of course, we would very much be amiss without mentioning that. That's there's this correlation, and I and I have an idea in my head of uh, where I think this has come from, but you will know much better than me. The twenties are very Egypt inspired uh, in terms of fashion, makeup, that sort of thing, and I believe that it was because there was a lot of, you know, that was when they discovered Tutankhamun's tomb. Was that yes, correct? Yes, that's correct. Mm -hmm. In so 1922. Yes, absolutely. So there had been phases of Egyptian revival since ancient Egypt, where the ancient Egyptians in 600 BCE are looking at art that's nearly 2,000 years old by the time they are creating tomb carvings and planning out inscriptions. So this idea of looking back into the past, into ancient Egypt, is something the Egyptians do, the Greeks and Romans do. Uh, we see it in medieval Baghdad, an investigation of the hieroglyphic script, although without a Rosetta Stone, without a key, uh, the translation effort couldn't really get anywhere until the discovery of the Rosetta Stone in, in 1799 and then the distribution of, of copies of it. But the 1920s are absolutely another phase 
of Egyptomania, as it's often called, or even Tutmania for the 1920s <laughs> in particular, uh, because of the discovery of the tomb in 1922 and the international press coverage because of it. And it's interesting. I have a few pieces of Egyptian revival fashion and jewelry from the 1920s, but a lot of it is not not my pieces. A lot of the Egyptian revival fashion from the 1920s is I find to be a little gaudy. And there are pieces that are beautiful that that I collect, but it's interesting because I I came at the fashion decades that I love because of my shape and what I find most appealing about the 20s and 30s in terms of silhouettes and style. And it's also as far back as you can go and still look modern. It, it's hard to look modern in mm. Edwardian clothing. Yeah, I know. <laughs> 20s and 30s can still be completely modern. So it, it, it's two independent things and, and then a, a coincidence that works very well that the discovery of the Tomb of Tutankhamun and that there are some fun Egyptian-inspired pieces that you can collect from the 1920s. I'm I'm now, uh, I, it's, I find things like when in, I will get, there will be a, a it will go back to the point here, but I need to take this journey. I find things where people are out of time very funny, where someone who's ended up in modern times from whatever year, 100 years ago, and they're confused by roads and things uh, and cars. Um, I find that very funny. But now I just, I've got this, this image of someone in Tudor clothing just sort of walking through the street like, Ooh, oh, this is a bit much, isn't it? Because uh, <laughs> I, I think you look like a time traveller as as well. Like you were saying that what suits your body and and how you look. I think you, you know, if someone could put a photo of you in black or in black and white, and I'd be like, that is from 1927. That picture is from 1927. You just you just have that. You embody it. Um, well, and how thank did, you so, so much. Did that? So did that love of fashion what what uh, sort of a what came first chicken or the egg situation really isn't it was this something you also loved when you were very young or did you discover that when you were you gotten a bit older or when did the the love of your aesthetic come into this so I've always loved fashion and I've always enjoyed studying fashion history although it wasn't something that I did formally in in college or anything like that and the collecting of vintage is something that John and I have really done, my, my husband, uh, John Darnell, professor of Egyptology, uh, <laughs> um, that's something we've really done together. And he had been wearing vintage since he was a child. So while I had always been interested in the aesthetic, I hadn't collected from an early age uh, the actual pieces. So that was that was something that, that's been really fun to do together and to find something that's a hundred years old and fits perfectly. It's just, what a great moment. And then choosing pieces that are robust enough to, to wear it in, in mm -hmm. a, obviously not day-to-day -day 1920s, uh, but wear to events and, and sometimes day-to-day. Yeah, that, I mean, like you were saying about the thrill of finding something while on a an archaeological ex, 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 ex I can't say words today, ex, ex, 
exhibition. Not exhibition. Would that be the right word? What am I trying to say? Help me. <laughs> <laughs> well, you could say uh, excavation during excavation. an expedition. <laughs> That's the. Thank you. Thank you. Um, yeah, the joy of finding the those pieces and and sort of again you discover its its story, the years. Uh, you know, check the what state it's in. Um, I'm sure you've got lots of stuff that um, the cat has just woken up, by the way, if you just suddenly hear screaming. Um, Egon, do you want to say hello? No, you're going to... We're having a conversation. Oh, he's just looking at me like, why have you woken me? Um, uh, yeah. Oh, there we go. This is Egon, <laughs> by the way. Oh, what a cutie! <laughs> Just, They're so have... adorable. And Bisen... so we have three Basenji dogs. Uh -huh. And Basenjis do actually go back to ancient Egypt. We have numerous depictions of them. And on John's expedition, when we are looking at rock inscriptions and carvings and art, there are a lot of depictions of Basenjis with their little pricked ears and curly tails. And you can tell one of the things that Basenjis do not do is bark. And from even depictions of the Senjis 6,000 years ago, they have little bells attached to their necks because otherwise they're totally silent. But they also have lots of wrinkles on their face. So that I, it always reminds me kind of their, their overall look <laughs> when, when so, a sphinx cat looks at you with all the wrinkles well yeah they, when, when i got egon the uh the lady who i got him from was like extra wrinkly i was like okay yes 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 sorry <laughs> I, just to come back did you say that they don't bark correct well, hang on well i'm just gonna block this door because that cat i don't trust it there we go ah um i've just put a jewelry box in front of a door just because they're strong and that you know if he wants to come in here and destroy my life, he could. So we've got to stop these. Uh, <laughs> uh, th th not not barking. That's that's not an, uh, a trait often shown by dogs. <laughs> true, true. But uh, Basenji, they they can occasionally when they get excited do a single bark, and they can make all sorts of other noises, ruining and and howling noises. But normally they don't. Normally they're just totally quiet unless they're playing and then they might growl or make kind of funny noises. But if they see something and they're really interested in it, they're completely silent. Oh, that's, I think that might be the, if I, if, if ever these cats, uh, you know, ruin enough interviews that I'm like, right, you're off, then I'll be, you know, I'll be asking you for recommendations of where to find these lovely, lovely canines. Um, you were you were saying about so you and your husband sort of discovered it together. Um, I think that's such a joy when that you know something that has such uh, so much to delve into that you can share that with someone else because you both look for those those of you listening. Please do go uh, onto the vintage Egyptologist at vintage Egyptologist Instagram and look because you two look spectacular next to each other. Um, and is that like when you're when you're finding things to go? Oh, these two outfits together. Bells of the ball. <laughs> well, first of all, thank you so much. And yes, uh, when when we are really going full out uh, to a big event, we will think about how well the our outfits coordinate. So, as as you, you know, that's how you get the good, the good, the good pictures. <laughs> yeah, but we'll, we'll come round to the social media in a little bit. But as you know, talking of uh, lovely events, 
uh, we have a mutual friend. Uh, I think we probably have a few mutual friends, uh, which will, I'm sure, come up at some point. But Jin Minsky. Uh, oh, my goodness. Yes. We just uh, saw her. Yes. And what's incredible about Jin is her ability to simultaneously perform a burlesque show while sw- sword swallowing. Oh yeah, she's phenomenal, <laughs> and she's one. She's one of those. You know, so I was in New York recently, and I saw Cocktail Magique, where she's currently playing in Brooklyn uh, until August, I believe. So that's a little plug for that if you are in the New York area or nearby. Um, I saw her recently, and I, you know, I we had planned this interview, and I, I remember thinking, huh, I wonder if they know each other, because it's like that thing where you know, so if I if I'm in America and someone goes, oh, my friend's English, do you know them? And it's almost like, <laughs> oh, oh, I think just because I'm come from England that I'll know them. But sometimes they say, and you go, oh no, actually I do. No, you're right. Actually, it's not a silly question. Um, but the vintage community is is you know, I follow a lot of. Uh, purveyors of fine vintage fashion on the internet and i think i i just believe you all know each other um you know you look at that that mutual mutual following on instagram you go of course they do of course they do <laughs> the, these uh, these wonderful vintage events i'm, I'm jealous because you know a lot seems to be happening in in the states uh for these beautiful there was the vintage fair in new york that i i kept playing there was a you were wearing uh some some i don't want to say balloon trousers because that would not be the correct term but some sort of riding trousery type things and you're parading around some sort of market and it just the place looked amazing they actually were bloomers so you're very close um yeah that was in february and the manhattan vintage show is happening again april 14th and 15th and I've so it's always fun trying to choose a vintage outfit for the vintage show because I want it to be over the top vintage, but I also want to be able to easily take it off and take it off and put it back on to try on other vintage clothing at the vintage try show. All the things. <laughs> I feel like my I have I have a severe lack of self control, so I feel like I'd go in and I'd be like, I'm just going to buy a hat, and then an hour later I come out looking like an episode of Sex and the City or something with just <laughs> just piled on bags and bags and boxes. Is uh, the, uh, the vintage community, I mean, other than throwing wonderful events, uh, you know, the, the sort of social aspect of that must be amazing because people all come together and they'll really make the effort to go to these fairs or these balls or these things. And it's, have you made lots of, obviously, you, you know, you and John, um, it was John, isn't it, your husband? Yes. John, uh, go to these things together. Um, and it just, yeah, it has, uh, from afar, watching online, seems like it has such a sense of occasion. And all these people I follow are just like, oh, it's lovely to see. And I go, oh, I know that one and that one. Um, it's really lovely. So the sense of occasion, is that sort of exciting? and It is. It, it really is. And having friends in, in the vintage community can be a lot of fun because, we there was one time a couple of years ago we all went to a historic theme park um and everyone was wearing vintage and there were i think 12 or 14 of us and 20s through 60s and otherwise you know no it, it wasn't a vintage event but we kind of made our own little vintage excitement 
that is a TikTok waiting to happen. I, I don't know why I used TikTok <laughs> as an example there. I'm not that fond of TikTok. But what I wanted to, to sort of speak to you about as well was was social media in regards to kind of your work in that uh, I, I think learning, having an, uh, an aesthetic or dressing something up beautifully, I think can really make people keen on on learning you know you can have a a, a wonderful image um that can draw people in and you go aha but um have you found that social media and the ability to make beautiful content has sort of brought a different joy to to learning and and teaching people absolutely because when we do so we often do photo shoots because of a particular outfit or a particular setting to to show kind of a totally different decade we did a shoot about 15 minutes away from our house at a ski slope so towards the end of the season when it wasn't going to be too cold and fortunately it wasn't the day I did it uh, <laughs> but there are these amazing 60s photos of women wearing Rudy Gernreich swimsuits and ski slope with tall 60s boots and kind of fun hats so I actually wore a bikini 60s bikini and tall 60s boots to a ski slope 15 minutes away from our house and then it was so much fun to be like oh and then what's the Egyptian connection well there's an example where snow is actually mentioned in hieroglyphs and it's a loan word because obviously that's not something the Egyptians tend to talk about <laughs> because it doesn't snow no, very imagine. often in <laughs> Egypt <laughs> so or uh, actually, no, I was featured in an, a wonderful online magazine called The Margot Magazine. And and a good friend of mine, Michelle Corsi, she's at my Vintage Love blog on Instagram, an amazing makeup artist. She did my makeup for the shoot. And I was wearing a circa 1940 equestrian ensemble. So really great tweed jacket and jumper pants. And I had actual riding boots. But I was in our dining room, which is very formal, 19th century, everything I've from the period. This. I've seen this picture. Yes, very beautiful, very beautiful. <laughs> and it reminded me, even when we were doing the photo shoot, of Catherine Hepburn in the Philadelphia story. Because she has virtually the same outfit when she's riding horses. And then, of course, their house is, is a big part of the movie. Although we don't have a house anything. Like that size. <laughs> but I, I felt like it was doing Philadelphia story vibes. And John and I were discussing the caption. Oh, what are we going to do? And John had the brilliant idea. There's a Philadelphia in Egypt, in the Fayyum, set up during the Ptolemaic period. And then, you know, we started looking out. Because sometimes we can write a caption just totally from scratch, things that we already know. But a lot of times we'll end up doing an extra research to make just the right connection to the photo. And it turns out there's this incredible archive of a secretary, basically. Um, and we learn all these things about society and economics and bureaucracy, circa 150, 200 um, BCE, from this archive in the city of Philadelphia in the Fayyum. And then what I really loved about that caption too is we were recently in the Fayyum uh, with an amazing gentleman whose name is Mahmoud and he's at Explore Fayyum and at Fayyumer on Instagram. And even though the Fayyum is only two hours away from Cairo, a lot of tourists don't visit 
that area. And it is incredible. So to be able to juxtapose fashion with a story about ancient Egypt, with promoting somebody, with an Egyptian who works in tourism and is an incredible historian and knows everything about the Fayyum, and to be able to promote his work and say, go to the Fayyum, you know, be with Mahmoud and tour around is just, that, that to me is what makes social media so special is to be able to combine those things and share it with an audience knowing that a few people out of all of my followers who are going to Egypt might then go to the Fayyum and have this amazing experience and they might not have known about it otherwise. I think your, your love for learning and teaching is very infectious. Uh, I think, yeah, it's, it's, again, every day is a day for learning, kids. You, they might look <laughs> at this and go, well, she's looking gorgeous in a dining room, but they delve and they have learned new things and hopefully they will go see it if they are there. Is there, um, as we're, we're coming, sort of coming towards the end, is there a favorite achievement of yours that you've done? Something that to this day you still go, I did that. <laughs> I So I'm going to say writing Egypt's Golden Couple with John. That was something that I had always wanted to do was publish a trade book and something that was written not just for an academic audience, but for everyone. And I feel like in that book, we really combined the most up-to-date scholarship and really serious interpretations of the material, but also breathed life into those characters with the present tense reconstructions at the beginning of each chapter. And I'm very, very proud of that. And even at the highest levels of academia, getting a contract with a major publisher and getting the chance to write a book for everybody is, is not something that everybody gets to do. So that, that to me was really checking a big box. So <laughs> that's beautiful. I, well, I look forward to the Netflix adaption as well. Let's hope so. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, just yeah. I don't. I, on this next, I don't want to go into this too much. But if people have not seen it, there is a, a brilliant video of you reacting to the Mummy, um, where uh, I, I, I've I've seen it a couple of times now. Just you know, because I d discovered new reactions from your from your face as 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 you watch it. You sort of remaining composed, but sort of going, mm, okay. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, it's it's a joy to watch everyone should go watch that um, and before uh, we let you go as you have things to do with your day is there uh, a dream thing that you would like to do like you would like to achieve something you're still looking for I mean because you're such a unique uh, guest for this specifically because usually I'm talking to a lot of musicians or um, actors comedians sort of thing so it's a different kind of achievements for you I guess that opens it up to there is this thing that is undiscovered and I would like to discover it like there's lots of different ways that your dreams could manifest in your work and and, and personal uh, achievements I guess yeah is uh, so what what's the dream hosting my own show <laughs> uh -huh. what, I, I would like love a podcast a, a documentary or? 
Uh, I, I, was, I was seeing a documentary. I, I would really like to do on television what John and I did in Egypt's Golden Couple, which is not just tell people about the past and history, but show people how we know what we know. Because I think that's something that is so significant and often overlooked that experts can want to say, okay, this is what it is because I'm an expert, so believe me when I tell you this. But I think with ancient history, it's really important to go through the steps of what text, what pieces of archaeological evidence, how it all fits together to tell us as close as we can get to what really happened. And I think that would be very exciting. And it's also, uh, there is a, an element of, uh, I guess, interpretation to some of it where you have the two things, but there's the bit between that you have to use the evidence from both to figure out how they they meet. There's a, I don't know if you've listened to it, but there's, a, whether it be your sort of thing, there's a podcast called Betwixt the Sheets, uh, which is uh, Kate Lister, I believe her name is, so she is a sex historian. Uh, so lots of sort of, you know, Victorian prostitution, that sort of thing. But there, there's, uh, you know, they do episodes on love affairs between, you know, two, between two ancient people and, and things like that. But I, I always like listening to it because the, the sort of the love and enthusiasm and in in connecting those stories and why this links to this is just, again, quite infectious. Um, I'll have to check that out. Yeah, betwixt the sheets. This is a plug for them. I've not. I don't work for them. Uh, my boyfriend Aaron really likes the podcast, and it's on. I've heard it, and it, Kate Lister is fantastic. Um, thank you so much for your time. This has been an absolute joy. Uh, we look forward to the Netflix special, to your own show. Let's say Sky <laughs> Arts. I reckon they've got. They've got the time. They've got that. They'll make this happen. I'm going to make some calls. I don't know anyone at Sky Arts. Um, <laughs> Uh, but no, it's been such a joy talking to you and thank you for being a beautiful fresh uh, breath of fresh air in this podcast. Thank you so much. It has been a delight to chat with you. Yeah, well, I hope you have a gorgeous day with your with your deliciously silent dogs. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> right. So I'm going to I'm going to end this. And then I'll say an actual goodbye, but it's ending for the customers. Customers? Oh my God, what am I talking about? The listeners! No one pays for this, it's free! Uh, <laughs> goodbye, everybody! Well, there we go, me and Dr. Colleen Dar now. I would say I hope you learned something, but you certainly did, unless you are Dr. Darnell listening back to this, in which case you knew these things because you said them. Very, very clever woman. Um, now, uh, now I do think that sometime in the future, maybe someone will dig up some clown white pan stick or something and they'll put it all through this 3D modeling and they'll do all, you know the, these fancy things they do to discover parts of history and piece together the puzzles and they'll say this strange makeup stick once belonged to a court jester by the name of Joe Black and then you know maybe they'll even find things of yours a hairbrush uh, what to, plates Spoons? I don't know what you use in your day-to-day -day lives. Anyway, talking of plates and spoons, I must go. Uh, I'm ever, ever so hungry. Um, Aaron, are you hungry? Yes. I is she hungry?
You know fine well. All right. Goodbye. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com.